0: The book of Jude I'm gonna read the last two verses 24 and 25 Ron Dunn tells a cute little story about that happened when his father in his father's business his father ran a trekking business and he had a guy working for him who uh, had a, a strange idiosyncrasy a kind of a quirk uh, three stooges call it idiot syncrasy. well this guy had an idiot he couldn't stand for anybody to leave a drawer open. And so he'd come in the office, and if somebody left a drawer open, he'd shut the drawer and pat it two or three times like that. And he said he did that all the time. He, he wasn't conscious of it. It was just kind of a, something he did unconsciously. So they got to playing games with him. They'd see him coming. They'd open a drawer, you know, just kind of watch him out of the corner of their eye, and he'd walk over there and shut the drawer and pat it three or four times. He said, then they began to crack them, just, just barely make a little crack in the drawer, just, just a little bit. He said, never missed one. He'd, he'd walk over there and check the drawer, and he'd push it in and pat it. Well, I've got a kind of an idiot of my own. I don't like to preach or teach in a room where there's a door open. Now, that drives me crazy. So that the last thing I always do before I Teach or preach in, in a room is I check see if all the doors are closed. True story. On, uh, at noon on Fridays, before I speak, I get up and go around, shut all the doors, and then I'm ready to ready to go. I may not be prepared here, but I'm gonna have all the doors closed. I I don't really know I don't really know why I do that, except maybe it's because if you're gonna leave, I'm gonna make it a little bit inconvenient for you to get out of here. <laughs> Now, I want to finish up this series on the book of Jude, but I want to be sure that every drawer is shut and every door is closed before I do. And that's why I want to read and, and speak this morning on this doxology. Now, really, it is a confession of faith, really. It's, uh, Jude comes to the end of a little book that, that is one of the most severe condemnations of sin you'll find anywhere. And then he bursts out just as he closes the last door. He bursts out in this doxology begins with the word now. Really, a better uh, word to begin with would be but. Because what he's doing is that he's taking this doxology, this confession of faith, and he's throwing it up against this terrible background of what he has said before, and he's saying in essence, I want you to look at this doxology In light of and against the dark background of all that I've said before. So he begins like this. But to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. A preacher friend of mine uh, went through a period of insomnia. He couldn't sleep at night and it began to drag on in days and even weeks and months. And he, he was beginning to just wear out physically, couldn't sleep. And so he decided he'd go to see his doctor, see if he could get get some help, and his doctor said, I'm going to to teach you how to hypnotize yourself. And what I'm going to teach you to do is to talk yourself into sleep. I have observed here on Sunday morning that some of you don't need any help (laughs) uh, talking yourself to sleep. I know I'm talking you to sleep. I know what you're thinking. But... So he said, I went to this doctor, and he said he got me in this chair and told me to relax, and he said, I want you to pick out an object on the wall. He said there was a nail up there. He said, I want you to look at that nail. I want you to concentrate. Now, don't try this. He said, I want you to concentrate on that that object on the wall and just clear your mind of everything except that object. And he said, I did. And he said, I was staring at that object, and he said, for a long time, he said, "I was just totally, totally concentrating on that nail." Then he said, "Close your eyes." He said, "I closed my eyes, and what do you think he saw? He saw that nail. And he said, "All I could all I was conscious of, with my eyelids closed, was that nail that I'd looked at." And he said, that lingered on and on, and after a while he said, "I was sound asleep in this guy's office." Now, it is true that what we see and what we feel after these things have disappeared from our vision, what bothers us in life. I have observed that the things we see sometimes just linger on, I mean, I get up in the morning, I'm feeling great, and I get a newspaper, I'm about to decide to quit reading the newspaper. I I pick up a newspaper, I'm just feeling great, and I read the stuff that's on that. I did it this morning just as an example. The whole front page of the Dallas Morning News was about some terrible tragedy. 14-year-old boy, Halton City, barricades himself, puts on, uh, his daddy was a policeman, puts on body armor and shoots people, kills a policeman. And in this paper was this story about this girl who was in that uh, robbery over in Dallas and uh, her friends had their throat slashed and she had her slashed. I mean, real good, gory stuff. And there's all this stuff that's going on in Waco. Have I, have I uh, sufficiently depressed you? And I pick up a newspaper and I read that stuff and it stays with me all day. I mean, I can't get, get, get past it. It just hangs on. In fact, some people say that usually the last things you see or hear are the things that you just linger with you and bother you. And that's why Jude comes to the end of this epistle. And he's talking about this terrible stuff about, you know, all the, the dangers of the Christian life. I mean, it's enough to get depressed. And Jude said, "I don't want you to. I don't want to close with that on your mind. I want the last thing you you look at to be this vision of God, and I want that to linger after your eyelids are closed. You look outward, and all you get is something that'll depress you. Look outside of you, and you'll find enough to make life miserable." And when you look inside, it doesn't help much. I'm, gonna, I'm having to confess to you this morning. When I look inside, what I find is a propensity to sin and a tendency to disobey God doesn't look much, doesn't look much better when you look inside. And so Jude said, don't look out, don't look in, look up. I know what people accuse Christians of being, They say that we're, you know, we hide our head in the sand, don't face reality. That we like that little statue we have over at our house of that monk has his hand over his eyes, I see no evil. One of them has his hand over his ears, I hear no evil. That what Christians are are people that don't face reality. That's not true. We face reality. We know things are bad. We know things are going to get worse. That's the reality of life. The thing is that our look, our Our final look is not the outward look or the inward look. Our look is the upward look. And I want you to hear this. That only the person who has the upward look, who keeps his eyes focused on God, only that person is going to be able to walk through this life with all of its terror and trouble and trials and pain and problems with a doxology in his heart. He's the only person who can And we ought to have a doxology in our heart. We ought to be people of song and praise. But the only way you and I ever do that is to keep our eyes upward, keep our eyes on Him. And so Jude said, I want you to see God. I want you to get a picture of Him. I want that to be the last thing you remember. A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said the gravest question facing the church is God Himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he does at any given situation, but what he in his heart conceives God to be like. And so um, Jude is saying, I'm going to draw for you a picture of God, and I want to be that, that picture to linger on through the day. Three pictures of him he describes. The first is that he wants us to see that God is sovereign, that God is sovereign. Now that's indispensable to a life of peace. That's indispensable to a life of contentment is the belief that God is sovereign. Now that word sovereign is a big theological word. It means this. It means God has the freedom and the ability to do what He wants to do and what He does is always right. Now I need to say that again in case you jotted it down. Sovereignty of God means that God has the freedom and the ability to do whatever He wants to do and whatever He does is right. And if you have a pencil, I want you to circle the word only in verse 26, only to the only God, because the sovereignty of God comes out of His aloneness. He is sovereign because He is only. Now, it means that God is not just supreme. It, It means that He is alone. It doesn't mean that God is first. It means God is first without a second. It doesn't mean that God is chairman of the board of gods. Means that he alone is God. There are no other gods. It doesn't mean that God is just the first, the best in his class. It means that there's nobody else. There's nobody else in his class. A few years ago, true story, out in Sagerton, Texas, it used to be Old Glory before the war broke out, and they they uh, uh, they, they, they they changed the name. And there's a, there's a kid out there in the senior class. He's the only one in the class came out in the USA today. He, made, he was president of his class. And he, he was vice president. He was most popular in his class, most likely to succeed. He won all the honors. He was the only one in there. It doesn't mean that God is best in his class. He's the only one in the class. Now you're saying to me, well, why are you making such a big deal of this? Everybody knows that God alone is God. Well, we don't act like it. There's some of us who seem to think, seem to act, that that there are two or three gods. What do you think about when you think of God? Do you think of someone who has the freedom to do anything he wants? If not, where does he go to get permission? Do you think of a God who is all-powerful? If you don't think of God like this, then to whom does God go for assistance? You think of God as all-knowledge, all-knowing. If He's not all-knowing, then to whom does He go for counsel? He is the only God, and He is not just supreme. He is alone. That means that God has the final say on everything. Now, some of us seem to think that our circumstances have the last word. Man, these things that are happening to me, its terrible. Some of us seem to act, seem to think, we act like we think that our weaknesses have the last word. I'm here to tell you that he alone has the last word. It not matter what anybody else says or what anyth- about anything that happens, no matter how dismal are the days, God has the final say. And we need to see the fact that he is sovereign in his aloneness and no one shares his power with him. God is sovereign. Second thing he wants us to see about God is that he is his Savior. He is a saving God. Now, there is a, he, he applies to God, assigns to God here a, 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 a strange, unusual title. He, he says in verse 25, to the only God, our Savior. Now, usually, that title is assigned to whom? To Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. But he, he uses this title and applies it to God because Jude wants us to see the full scope of the saving um, activity of God. He wants us to see the full view, see God in His fullness and in His saving concern. And he wants us to see that all of salvation is the result of God's concern and love. He is a saving God. It means protector or deliverer, but in the New Testament, it was a word that was used in a unique sense, and, and here's how it was used. You might, be a, you might live in one of those little colonies of the Roman Empire, and, and, and those were little outposts that were out on the extremity, out on the outskirts of the Roman Empire. Philippi was one of them. That's why Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we are citizens of heaven. I like the Moffat translation. It says we are little colonies of heaven. And they'd have these little outposts out on the edge, on the extremity of the Roman Empire. And these little communities, these little colonies, outposts, would have a certain amount of democracy. They, they could make some decisions of their own, and they had a, a kind of a self-governing privilege, and yet... They were accountable to and responsible to the Roman Empire because they were just little outposts of Rome. So what you'd have over here is the Roman Empire with the Roman Emperor over here in the city. Way out on the outpost over here on the edge, you'd have these little colonies. And these little outposts became targets of these marauding nations, these marauding enemies. And these nations out there, they'd get up a band of men and they'd come into these little outposts and, and, and they'd uh, sack them and, 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 and kill their people. When these marauders would come over here in the Roman Empire, the emperor would mount on his horse and he'd get his army together and they'd march out to the edge of the empire and, and rescue those little colonies and wreak havoc on the marauding enemies. And every single time, without exception, these kings who would come to rescue those little colonies or outposts were called saviors. So what Jude is doing is this. He's saying, our citizenship is in heaven, and God comes to our aid, comes to our rescue in time of need. I love it. He is our saviour. Now, notice the phrase that he applies to that. He says, through Jesus Christ. Now, the King James, if you have a King James Bible, it was left out. That phrase is left out. Don't ask me why. It should have never been done. It misses the whole point. What he's saying is, is that this salvation of God, this deliverance, this protection of God comes through Jesus Christ. Now, listen to me carefully. The only way that God becomes our protector and our deliverer is through His Son. If you think that you're going to come to God by any other means than through Jesus Christ, you're greatly disappointed. And not only is it just through Jesus, it's through Jesus our Lord. And what he's saying is this is that the salvation that comes from god and his deliverance coming in the nick of time to save us is when a person is willing to bow his knee to the lordship of jesus christ our savior now a lot of people want jesus to be savior it's another thing to have him as lord he wants us to see the sovereignty of god see god as savior finally He wants us to see that God is sufficient. Now I have a feeling that some of us have some doubts as to the sufficiency of God. He's adequate. He is sufficient for the present. And that's where this author hones in. That's where he focuses on the present. What he's saying is that in this present moment, at this given time in your life, at this juncture of your experience God is adequate for every need. Nora Greenwell once said the curse of religion is the habit of translating into a vague future tense what Christ offers us now. The tragedy of Christianity is is that we translate into a vague future tense what Christ offers now, I tell you, He is adequate now, sufficient today for your need. He is able to keep you from stumbling. I must say to you that when I first started out as a Christian, my concept of Christianity was that that when you were a Christian, when you fell, God was always there to pick you up and dust you off and get you started again. And that He was faithful to always be there if you needed Him when you, when you, when you fell or when you got hurt or whatever. I, I, I need to tell you that I've made this discovery, that the issue of Christianity is not that God is available to pick you up. The issue of Christianity is that God is able to keep you from falling. There's a big difference. Let me see if I can picture it for you. Suppose you're sitting on a park bench, and you're just kind of relaxing in the beautiful uh, sunshine, and you look down the sidewalk, and here comes a little old lady, kind of shuffling along, uh, walking with a cane. And she comes down the sidewalk, and just she gets about 10 yards from where you're sitting, she stumps her toe in a crack in the sidewalk and just sprawls out out on the sidewalk. Just takes a dive. And there's a young man nearby, and he rushes over there, and he picks her up, and he, he tenderly, you know, checks her out, dusts her off. You're, you all right, ma'am? Are you okay? You sure you're all right? And he helps her up and picks her up. That's one thing. Let's suppose you're sitting on that park bench and you're kind of enjoying the sunshine and you look down the sidewalk and here comes a little old lady shuffling along. She's walking with a cane in one hand. But on the other arm, there's this big old guy that's got muscles on top of muscles and looks like a bodybuilder. It's her grandson. She's got her arm in his arm and he's got his arm around her and he's kind of helping his granny down the sidewalk. As they get close to that crack he says now granny watch it there's a crack here let me let me help you a little bit here so he kind of helps her over the crack and and they kind of get you know shuffle past you and on down the sidewalk on their merry way that's another thing what Jude is talking about is the ladder he's saying that there isn't a place in this life where he's not going to be present to help you overcome and there's not going to be a time in your life where you'll ever meet any circumstance where he is not sufficient for that circumstance. He is sufficient for the present. And he is sufficient for the future. He said he is able to present us blameless. It's the word "amomos" in the in the Greek. It's the... It's the word that was used of a lamb that was about to be sacrificed without spot or blemish. Only that lamb was worthy of the sacrifice. And what Judas saying is this, is that Jesus will present us to God without spot or blemish, blameless. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And the New Testament idea is, is that when you give your life to Jesus Christ, God takes the righteousness of Jesus like clothes and clothes you with His righteousness. And you stand before God blameless. Wonderful, love it. There's not a single one of us this morning who is worthy of standing before God apart from the righteousness of Jesus. And not only does he say that you will stand before him blameless, but you'll do it with joy. He said with great joy you stand before him. Now everybody in this congregation this morning will one day stand before God. A holy God. A God whose eye pierces past man's veneers to his heart and soul. Every one of us will stand before God, and some of us won't be glad to do it. But Jude says that this God is able, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to present you before this holy God, and you'll be glad to be there. He's adequate for the future. Whatever there is beyond this day, my friend, he's sufficient. Did you did you read about that little girl that that had a her lungs were were damaged with cystic fibrosis? This is yes. This is no. Most of you did? She was in the paper yesterday, she, I saw her on CNN. This little girl, about 12 or 14 years old, she looked. She, she had cystic fibrosis, that's a disease of the lungs. She lost most of the capacity to breathe. Showed her, uh, prior to her surgery, trying to breathe, gasping for breath, and her mother and her father gave her part of their lung and transplanted to her. A, 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 a lobe of her lung, of their lungs, gave it to her. And, and this doctor, it's an unusual procedure, but this doctor transplanted a portion of their lungs, her mother and father, into this little girl. Then it showed her. She was, she was breathing deep. She said, man, I, 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 haven't, I can breathe. I, I, I just, I, I haven't been able to do this for, for years. And she just sucking in the air and breathing Then she said, are you listening? She said, every breath I'll breathe from now on will be for them. Every breath I take from now on will be for them because this is their lungs." Jude said, I want you to see a God who is only God. The only God, our Savior, sufficient for present and future. This kind of God, every breath I take will be for Him. And everything I do will be for Him. And every thought I think and every word I say will be a word of praise and thanksgiving to the God who gave me my breath. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we pray now that we'll take our eyes away from the things that cause us pain and trauma to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord and I pray that those of us who have never claimed Christ our Savior and Lord shall do it today and those of us who have our eyes on the outward look will look on him And God, I pray that everything we do now will be for you. For I ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Now there are three invitations. Look here. There's an invitation for you this morning to give your life to Christ. After the morning service, a man came up to me and said, Look what my son wrote. And on the the bulletin, the little boy wrote, I want to join the church. And the father wrote after that, he said, well, son, you'll have to be saved and be baptized, and they're going to talk about it. Maybe this morning you understand that there's more than just joining the church. But you'd like to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ, the basis of what he's done for you. Publicly declaring your faith. Or maybe you'll need to come this morning to join with this church. You're already a Christian. You've already been baptized. You want to join our fellowship or you want to come today to rededicate yourself to God, put your eye on the upward look. Would you do it? Why would there not be, why would there be a better opportunity than right now? While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.